0: Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, hardcore dharma, consciousness hacking, emptiness, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode, we're going to turn the usual host and interviewee tables around. Over the last year or so, I've received a number of requests to do an episode myself, and I did attempt to do that actually a couple times but those efforts were a dismal failure. I am super interested in human interaction and what's going on in other people's minds and their opinions and so on, and it turns out that just pontificating into the dry air in an empty studio was not inspiring for me, and I was positive it would not be inspiring to listen to. So I decided to go back to an interview format, but with a wrinkle. I would have my friend Eric Newton interview me for the episode. And Eric is an interesting choice, as well as an interesting human being. He is a lawyer that was the head of a very successful family law firm, which gave him the opportunity to take part in thousands and thousands of divorces. And as the result of that experience, two things happen. One, he created the wildly popular podcast called Together, which explores, quote, the truth of human relationships, unquote. And in that podcast, Eric uses his hard-won knowledge of the many failure modes of relationships to help couples understand how to come together. And the second thing that happened was that he experienced a profound spiritual awakening outside of any practice or tradition. And that left him kind of floored for several years as he struggled to understand what had happened. And so as someone with some understanding of awakening, but who was also completely unfamiliar with the wisdom traditions, I thought Eric would be an ideal interviewer for this episode. The interview we came up with is unusual, and it covers a lot of ground, and it's exactly what I was hoping for. So let me know what you think about it. And without further ado, here's the episode that I call Deconstructing Michael with Eric Newton.
1: Michael Taft, how's it going? Welcome to your show.
0: Thanks, Eric. Welcome (laughs) to my show. (laughs) This is an interesting experiment.
1: Yeah. You know, I love your show. It's interesting. It's nice to be back in the studio. So thanks for inviting me.
0: It's your studio, at least formerly.
1: Yeah. I feel like I'm the emeritus owner of the studio. (laughs) You know, this was my studio and I have a deep attachment to it, but it's transitioning as all things do. (laughs) Yes. It's changed
0: quite a bit since you were here already.
1: (laughs) Is it fair to say that it's falling apart a touch? I
0: would not venture to judge the change just to notice that it is, in fact, impermanent. It is like impermanent. things. Yes,
1: it's such a good metaphor. Yeah, so it's great to be back. And it's also nice to be on this end of the mic on your show because I listen to every episode. We might even go so far as to say religiously.
0: Wow. <laughs> Remember, fan is short for fanatic.
1: <laughs> yeah, so thanks for having me here. So, you know, I thought it would be a good place to start by asking why the heck you do the show. I'm sure everybody thinks they know the answer, but really, really, why do you do the show?
0: There's like kind of a multi-layered answer to that. One is that a couple of years ago, I happened to be having these phone conversations with Kenneth Folk and the phone sessions, these talks we'd have, which were just like kind of friendly, collegiate discussions were just so interesting and fun for both of us. And they went on for hours and hours and we were eventually like, why aren't we recording this? This is really interesting. Maybe other people would find it interesting. And so eventually we did just that. And you'll notice that the first, you know, three programs are long conversations between me and Kenneth. And that was really the genesis or kind of the initial seed But in addition to that, I've also just really wanted to have these conversations with various really fascinating teachers and philosophers and thinkers and human beings of other sorts. And so I thought, why stop here with these three conversations? Why not continue? Because initially I thought maybe just put the three conversations up, you know, on YouTube or something and just have that be that. But honestly, once I kind of got the bit in my teeth. I couldn't stop making podcasts. I just love doing it. And that's another layer is that I just love this. These are the conversations I want to have. It's exciting to me. It's interesting to me. And the fact that other people get something out of it is just gravy on top. You know, that's wonderful. I'm super stoked about that. And, you know, it's also my deep history. It's my own background. I was the editorial director and the producer That sounds true for a long time. So interviewing spiritual teachers, editing the programs of spiritual teachers, thinking about what we might want to publish from spiritual teachers, all of that is my own kind of home base in a way. And so coming back to it after a long while away just felt too good to stop (laughs) doing it.
1: You said that this is what you want to talk about. There's that, there's something inside you that just keeps making this conversation interesting over and over. And at the same time, there's something about this conversation that for me at least is like listening to a favorite song. You know, I get a lot of pleasure from listening to my favorite eighties love ballads. (laughs) This interview is now over. That's so true. I uncoolified yeah. myself with one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. You know, but it's so like we just get the sense of familiarity and the joy that comes from that. And and also, you know, there's the kind of a truth I am really hesitant to use that word ever and particularly on this show, but there's a kind of truth that's being expressed in the way that you approach this conversation about mindfulness and such. But you have had this conversation so many times and you've arrived at the same kind of answer so many times. Why are you continually fascinated by having it over and over? Well, I'm not sure I agree with the characterization.
0: I mean, I think that it's rare that we ever reach any conclusion, especially any firm conclusion. There's like a lot of different potential conclusions or maybe places that one can land. But I never feel like we actually firmly land in any of those, especially if you listen to some of the podcasts where the people I'm speaking with reach very, very different conclusions. And I'm kind of agreeing with both of them just to, you know, okay, let's see where that person goes. And that leads to really the answer to your question, which is, you know, awakening, enlightenment, meditation, spirituality, dharma, all of that, it is not a destination, right? And it's not even really predictable, even though many people claim it's predictable. As far as I can tell, it's much, much more like a journey or a practice of an art than it is like trying to get somewhere or trying to reach a foregone conclusion. And in that sense, everyone, especially, you know, you talk to deep practitioners, they might understand the experience each other is having, but their experience of it is so different. The idiosyncratic vocabulary they have developed of their own to talk about it is completely fascinating and completely different their sense of the journey. I mean, if I ever create this secondary program format I'm thinking of where we have like several spiritual teachers on here at once, like let's say Shinzen and Chuladasa talking to each other, you'll just get a sense of how completely different their ideas and concepts about the path are. And so it's much more like Talking to artists. It's like talking to painters or something about the painting work they do. It's a journey, it's a practice. They have their own rich, deep relationship to it that's about coming to it over and over again, day after day. You know how modern artists don't talk so much about craft or so much about theory, they talk about their practice, you know, their thing that they do every day with the art. And so it's really related to that. And to me to get in there, I mean, I just love getting inside other people's minds. Like, you know, what's the most interesting kind of book, the most interesting kind of book in one way, you know, nonfiction, I want to learn something, but really, really the most interesting kind of book is a novel, a very well-written novel. Why? Because you get inside somebody else's head, like fully inhabit another consciousness, or you have the feeling that you inhabit another consciousness. And to me, that's always been, I just love that. And I enjoy doing that with, for example, students or clients or whatever, like part of Being a teacher, being a good teacher is getting inside their head and understanding how they're seeing and their worldview and then working with that worldview, you know? And so to me, it's just like tremendously fascinating, fun, interesting, and I would say maybe endlessly fascinating, fun, and interesting to hear about like the practice, hear about the worldview, hear about, and get inside the head of these amazing teachers.
1: Okay, that's a great answer. Now, you said something in that answer. You referenced the path. Everybody talks about the path in a different way. What the heck is the path?
0: Well, that's what I was trying to deconstruct. There is no the path that exists independent of all these practitioners who, you know, even though they're using often some vocabulary that's similar and mileposts that are similar and and so on, when you get in there and talk to them, it's about as different as it could be. You know, the, each of them has a quite a unique take. And uh, many of them will insist that there is a sequence and there is a, you know, set path and all that. And, okay, we can see similarities and we can talk about the systems and we can talk about maps and, and really focus on the similarities. But I found over time it's much more interesting to focus on the differences because that's the really unique part and that's where the beauty
1: is and the art. But it is all a conversation about mindfulness awakening and enlightenment as you said at the outset that's the common thread here.
0: Yeah, whatever that means.
1: Yeah, whatever that means. Okay, great.
0: <laughs>
1: Duly noted. <laughs> you know, we could you
0: expand <laughs> the definition to be pretty large. There, can be just, you
1: could know? be yeah, just about anything. Yeah. And I, I love having this conversation with you because you've had it so many times, you can't be jujitsu into a chokehold. Like
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably them. could, you know, but,
1: but so far you're, you're failing with your, with your jujitsu powers. Well, let me ask this question, which is definitely not jujitsu deconstructing yourself how did you come up with the name
0: so you know my main teacher for the last many years has been shinzen young and he's a great teacher and we've had him on the show three times now probably have him on a whole bunch more he has so much to say but he teaches a very complicated and highly effective but heavily (laughs) front-loaded version of vipassana version of mindfulness right there's a lot to learn and the techniques are hard but once you put in the time to learn it and do the techniques most people find it's worth it.
1: Just as a footnote, that's a fascinating barrier to entry. Yeah. It must filter for a very specific kind of person.
0: It mainly filters for people who have a long-term practice already. So they've got the uh-huh. basics down and they're ready for something beyond the basics. And also for people who are nerdy. It's just a, there's a nerd factor that is a very common thread. If you're not into impromptu lectures on historical linguistics or some kind of abstract math, then you're out. Yeah. Because there's a lot of those.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nerds, the superheroes of our age. That's right. Okay. So
0: Shenzhen's kind of aptly suited for the modern era. But in any case, I have now completely forgotten your Deconstructing question. yourself. How did yes. you come up
1: with the name? Yeah, I was Shenzhen and I footnoted you.
0: So one of the techniques that Shinzen teaches is a technique called focus in and I think he's changed the name of it to something like focus on thoughts and feelings something like that and that's an apt description but basically you are doing a multi-channel vipassana on thinking and feeling, and you're dividing thinking into mental images and mental talk. You're dividing body sensations into regular type body sensations and emotional type body sensations. And then you're monitoring those four channels continuously. Sometimes it's three channels. But as I was doing that, you know, retreat after retreat, year after year, you know, what is this thing you're focusing on, this agglomeration of thought and feeling? I'm I'm like, what is that? Well, that's an ego. And what we're doing is, you know, taking it apart and putting it back together and taking it apart and putting it back together. You're just watching this deconstruction of self. And so that phrase just came up in my mind one day and just landed as, oh, this is what I'm doing. This is deconstructing myself. So that's where I got the name of the blog back in 2011 and continued to use that for the show.
1: Yeah. I love the idea of it because it's almost as if what else would we do with ourselves all day anyway, except for this process, you know, deconstructing yourself seems like the core and the most interesting thing to do.
0: Well, most of us are doing the opposite, right? We're reconstructing ourselves and trying to shore up our previous reconstruction in all kinds of unsatisfactory and impermanent and ultimately futile ways. However, that being said, one of the most fascinating things to me is that if you get to a certain place in deconstruction, you get to a certain level of insight into emptiness, or you get into a certain level of anatta-type experiences, suddenly, or maybe not so suddenly, it might take years, but eventually reconstruction might become really, really interesting, right? We're taking everything back to You know, the void taking everything back to emptiness or watching experience dissolve over and over again, watching the self dissolve into spacious freedom over and over again watching the world do that, you do that enough and something really fascinating starts happening, which is you start noticing the world coming back from that, the world reconstructing, and then the self reconstructing back from that over and over again in this cycle of dissolving and reconstituting and falling apart and then falling back together. And that is a really, really fascinating dance. And eventually, I think it almost recreates like the history of Buddhism, where in Theravada and, and Mahayana, systems of Buddhism were very focused on anatta, very focused on emptiness. But then after a while, it becomes focused on reconstruction, like highly effective action in the world. And I see that as something that happened in the history of Buddhism, but it also is kind of fractally recreated in the experience of individual practitioners, where at a certain point, emptiness and form become equally interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, at some point, it seems like instantly, if you can observe this, that sounds like the most fascinating thing there is to observe.
0: Instantly, or two years on a couch, if you're Eric Newton. (laughs) Two years
1: on a couch. (laughs) <laughs> right? Weren't, weren't you just
0: like hanging out in emptiness for like a couple of years? I would say before reconstitution of form became more interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, to varying degrees. One full month of absolutely no attachment to anything and just pure experience of isness. <laughs> and then the coming and going of that for a couple of years where I just couldn't convince myself to take any action. I just couldn't, <laughs> I, just couldn't I couldn't do anything yeah. except my podcast. I did host my podcast. That's effortless. It was. Yeah. I trusted my procrastination, my procrastination about everything else. Yeah.
0: So you, you but you see, it's like, there's a while where it's just, we're just going to hang out in emptiness. That's the most interesting thing in the world. And then eventually it's sort of like, huh.
1: Yeah, yeah. The world world keeps coming back. Although I have to confess, for me, it was discomfort that finally made me focus on the reconstitution bit.
0: And just because I can't resist asking, (laughs) you know, what about the (laughs) emptiness of that discomfort?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the question, right? That's definitely the place to look. But at the time, that kept leading me to being more poor. Yes, yes. You know and i decided probably better for the sake of my relationship which was the one bit of meaning i could still attach to that i make some money did you have any desire to also i was really ready to die yeah i mean i think i've told you that before right i was i was happy i was i mean maybe i was clinically depressed but (laughs) but i felt very happy but i was also just kind of bored yeah. And I was just like, this is all fascinating and interesting, but I've seen this played out so many times and everything's perfect and everything's perfect. If really, really, everything really is truly perfect. If the isness is complete and whole unto itself, then there's nothing to fucking do.
0: Right. I don't know if you are old enough to remember the uh, Talking Heads song called Heaven, but the memorable refrain is that heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. And that's the exact idea, right? Of course, you know, in Buddhism, we wouldn't normally talk about heaven in relation to awakening, but that idea of, okay, the perfection of the moment, it's just already done. It's yeah. already here. And yet my heart keeps beating, stuff keeps happening. It seems like the two choices are like, well, you can go maybe hang out in a monastery somewhere forever or re-engage with the world, start doing stuff again.
1: And also there's a fallacy in the experience of heaven, which is that it's static, you know, in the moment, it feels like it's the totality of what is, or it's the fully baked truth or something. And also that it's going to be permanent. But, you know, it's actually the only way it can be experienced is through a valence. And that valence requires some suffering, you know, or an approximation of it. And so this notion of heaven is the thing that we think the heaven is when we're experiencing it is actually just annihilation.
0: Yeah, you know, check out the podcast number three, right? Where me and Kenneth just talk about annihilation for an entire podcast. There's something there, right? But the point you're making is fascinating. To me, there's, again, I just keep coming back to this historical understanding or perhaps misunderstanding. Maybe it's just a romantic notion. But I think about, you know, at the high point of Buddhism in India, classical Buddhism in India, where you've got these you know, giant masses of practitioners working together in these big universities and stuff. It's like a lot of people are getting very awake to emptiness very early in their lives. And at a certain point, there's kind of a what next factor, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's when they start getting into Vajrayana and into skillful action in Mm -hmm. the world in a really much more focused manner.
1: Yeah, it's from that moment forward that things have gotten interesting for yeah. me. Yeah, it's much more fascinating now. But that all brings me to a question for you. So let's get off of me, because I'm far less interesting. <laughs> um, you, you
0: didn't notice me, did you just <laughs> flip the interview? <laughs>
1: I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm okay to be on the bottom part on the mat a couple of times, yeah. but, but we got to get back to you, my friend. You walk this line in a really fascinating and skillful way between speaking to and coming from your own unique individual experience on the one hand and also being able to reference literature and other teachers on the other hand and the reason i'm I'm interested in that is usually people are in one or the other of these two camps either they're talking only about the work of others and distancing themselves from their own experience. Or, like me, they don't know anything about anybody else's work (laughs) and can only speak to their own experience. And it seems like your balance is actually probably better and smarter. But how do you actually do that?
0: Yeah, thanks. It's an interesting question for me. I think the answer is something really simple, like, because that's just how I am. Yeah. But to run with it a little further, you know, When I was a kid, my parents bought me a full set of encyclopedias, right? And like that was back when we had books. (laughs) A set of encyclopedias took up like a whole wall of the house. And I like actually sat there and read those things. All the way through? Not all the way through, but I for my entire childhood and teen years, I literally read the encyclopedia. And that's always been kind of my mindset. I just like to read and I like to understand where things come from. I read a lot of history and philosophy and so on. And so I'm able to make connections Because of that, that maybe other people aren't so. But also, I think, you know, there's a downside to it, which is it's the broad, shallow version, right? I could connect to to a lot of different traditions and talk about a lot of different stuff. But I also notice if I get in a Twitter conversation with someone like Jayarava, who is a, you know, hardcore textual adept at the scriptures of Buddhism and so on, you know. There's just nothing for me to say because, you know, this person knows so much more than me about the deep, deep, deep specifics of such and such a, you know,
1: help me out here with a nod to all of those types of folks out there who may be listening to this. I have great appreciation for their knowledge, but I have to admit, you know, my normal identity oriented way of being is to not pay very much attention to the academia or the scripture. And, yeah, but there's but, a value okay. to it, right? Of I mean, speak you, to the value of it for me.
0: Well, you used to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> You're still a lawyer, yeah, right? used,
1: used to is the <laughs> operative concept. <here. laughs>
0: yeah, but, I mean, think about it. Like, you want a lawyer to know what they're talking about if you go to a lawyer and, and understand all the precedents and all that. And that's what they're for, right? There, We need specialists in everything. I'm beyond elated that there's people that have very deep scriptural knowledge or have very deep practice knowledge in a tradition that I don't know that much about. I think some of us are just more about kind of making connections, cross connections, maybe having conversations. And again, it's why, even though I have my own practice and I really enjoy writing, I think that the podcast turns out to be one of the ideal forms for me because it is about connecting with people who are very deep into their own thing.
1: Well, I'm probably twisting your words here, but it does seem like you might be suggesting that scripture can get in the way of having an individual experience.
0: Yeah, I had no, (laughs) I did not say that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I'm not against scripture
0: in any way. I think it's cool, you know, but I don't give it any authority either. So,
1: ah, what's that distinction? Yeah. Explain that distinction.
0: Well, to me, it's just obvious that everything is partially true, which means everything is partially false to some degree or another. It could be a lot true and a little false, a lot false and a little true, but either way, taking anything as the truth is obviously problematic and, uh, broken. So to me, even just as a literature weirdo, as, as someone who, you know, my mom's a librarian, I was raised reading from the minute I was born. I probably, if there's anything I worship, it's probably books. You know, just the fact that we have these writings from 2,500 years ago, or probably more like 2,200 years ago, that to me is really, really interesting. And the fact that There are people alive right now who study the crap out of that and become very, very adept at interpreting and understanding those. And all that is just a fascinating, beautiful, powerful thing. And we can get a lot of wisdom out of it. And at the same time, I'm positive it is not the final truth. So it's an interesting viewpoint and there's a lot of interesting viewpoints. And I'm both dedicated to understanding those viewpoints and at the same time dedicated to not having any one of them be a permanent landing pad.
1: Was there a time in your life when, looking back, you think of yourself as, at that time, having been a seeker?
0: Oh, yeah, most of it.
1: Right? Okay. When did that shift?
0: Uh, There's a very particular time, you know, I definitely went through many, many years as a, you know, hardcore seeker. If you ask me at that time what my life was about, it was about getting enlightened and that's all I'm doing. And I'm, you know, spending time underground meditating in India and going to Japan and attending zillions of retreats in the States. And that was my identity really, you know, and and while being fully aware, even at the time of problematic aspect of having an identity as a seeker. It's still, I was like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. And then eventually, even as my practice deepened, I still, I was like, yeah, this is what it's about. And then I went on a long retreat at the Insight Meditation Society's facility called the Forest Refuge. I was there for a little over three months and, you know, there wasn't any big event. It wasn't like, oh my God, you know, I'm plugged into God's light socket or something. But when I came out of that retreat, I just wasn't a seeker anymore. It just gone and it has not returned. Either.
1: What I want to understand that in a deeper way. So let's start with defining what is a seeker. I know I acknowledge I'm the one who asked the question, but since you latched onto it, what, what's a good definition of being a seeker?
0: Whether it's good or not, the simplest one is a person who's looking for awakening in a very earnest manner.
1: In one way or another, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be in any particular discipline.
0: Not any particular discipline, but for me, the definition includes very earnest. Yeah. It's one of the top three or probably the most important thing they think they're
1: doing. And so when you came out of that three-month retreat, what component of that definition was lacking or was absent?
0: I couldn't find the motivation anymore. There was just no more sense of that drive to find awakening. It was just like it had completely dissolved. And the identity of being someone who was looking for awakening, I couldn't find that either. It was just not there. Yeah. And so when you're hungry, you're hungry. And when you're not, it's just like this fact. You don't sit there and think about like, oh, my hunger is gone now. Where did it go? And it was very similar to that. It was just like this weird fact that seeker thing
1: was just not there. Except the hunger will come back. And this...
0: Different hunger. You know, hunger for other stuff in a different way. It's much harder to constitute an identity around it, however.
1: Yeah. So the earnestness was gone because there was nothing more to seek.
0: You know, I didn't say the earnestness was gone. To me, it's still like the most interesting thing in the world to talk about this stuff and to practice it and be around people who do that. But that core thing of I'm earnest about it because I want to be enlightened Mm -hmm. was just dissolved. You know, it's very strangely vanished. And like I say, it must have slipped quietly out the back door because there wasn't a big moment of it like leaving in a a huff or something out the front door. What else vanished with it? A lot had already vanished before that, in the years before that, even since my mid-20s. A lot had vanished over time. And I think that identity of being someone who's seeking or being a seeker was one of the Last, not the last, but one of the last big kind of lumps of undigested selfhood that got digested in that retreat.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how it happened to you over a long course of time. Uh, and through pa-
0: particularly dense, <laughs> it took a long <laughs> ass time.
1: <laughs> you worked so hard at it, you know, and I really admire that. And also, what a fun experience! All those retreats, India give me a break right now. What a great life that was. I've had a great time. That's for sure. in A lot of interesting places. And so now that you're not seeking, you enjoy talking, is there something that needs to be done? Is there doing that feels important?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I keep coming back to a kind of a, a layer cake of things that are important that used to seem kind of separate or more separate and now have come together in my mind very clearly as a stacked thing that is Important, And it has to do with the absolute apocalyptic destruction of the natural environment and the unbearable and horrific oppression of human beings and animals and um, the way that any kind of opening up could relieve or help that. I think that we are in a much more precipitously declining situation than people really understand mm-hmm. and that our our need to do something about it is acute. It's time to take action in the world as far as I'm concerned. And I think that awakening can really, really help with that in a number of very direct ways. And so...
1: uh, Awakening for the people out there in the world can help with that on a global scale.
0: Particularly people in places of power, people in positions of wealth or power, Having some kind of even hint of awakening is crucial at this moment because it's going to change their relationship to their power and money and hopefully change their actions in the world.
1: By way of asking more about that specifically, let me go a little meta. How do you relate to the notion of matteringness, whether things matter or don't matter?
0: Yeah, so as we talked about in one way, we can just relax into perfect emptiness or nirvana or a non-dual state, and in a way, nothing matters at that point. Part of the definition is that in that moment, maybe nothing matters, although I would say that, at least in a lot of uh, Buddhist philosophy, other people's suffering still should matter. We could get into the nuances of that, but in a rough way, let's just say in the non-dual awakening place, right in the moment of that, if you really go to the nth degree of that, it's possible that nothing matters. And yet coming back into the world at all, meaning giving up to walk, being able to negotiate a room so you don't bump into the wall, etc. Like having enough ego to not get hit by a car, as Suzuki Roshi used to say, that's enough of an ego to have a lot matter to have a real sense that other people's suffering is incredibly important. Your own suffering is important. The suffering of others is very important. And also the suffering of animals and the natural world is important. I mean, the minute you come back into duality at all, there's something to do as far as I'm concerned. And I mean, that's personal to me. I don't put that on other people so much. I think it's interesting to hear what they have to say about it. And I don't feel super judgmental about it. But I do feel that, again, this is about reconstruction, right? Reconstitution, total deconstruction, total dissolution. You come back from that. It's interesting, but it's also, in my opinion, incumbent on me not only to have that be interesting, but to continuously strive. And I'm consciously using that term strive with effort to make a better self arise, a self that is more concerned about others, a self that is more concerned about the world and that demonstrates that concern in very skillful ways. And then you can go home and sit on your cushion and let go of that for a while, completely.
1: Yeah. Does it hurt? What
0: it are you referring to?
1: Being present to anything that's not right, being present to the suffering of others, being present to the potential impending destruction of our natural environment being aware that that's the case and you know holding this balance between everything being perfect and nothing mattering and being identified with that it, it's a problem
0: well to a certain degree to have anything matter at all means that there's some suffering involved right i mean those two things go together and you just use the important operative term which is balance and so It's not the case that being more concerned in a way that tears you up more with anxiety and fury and despair is going to help anybody, right? It's not helping you. It's not really helping anybody. So there needs to be, again, a skillful relationship between caring and taking action and also being able to let some of that pass through you without, you know, creating damage. You want to have it be sustainable, right?
1: This is my game too. And I don't really know how other people have played this game or the best way to play it. What I try to do, and I'm curious if this is what you do also in order to become more skillful, is I work to become more and more and more aware of the illusion that I'm engaging with as an illusion, even though I choose to engage with it.
0: Yeah, you're seeing its emptiness in the moment and that's exactly how you do it. You engage and you engage with very with a lot of sincerity and effort. And at the same time, or let's say switching back and forth quickly, because it probably can't probably, literally yeah. be at the same time, yeah, but you notice the emptiness of it and let it just pass through you as a wind or whatever before coming back to engaging.
1: And it only works if you play it fully. You know, I find for me, I have to fully invest myself in the experience when I'm invested in it.
0: Well, this is what's so fascinating, right? It's not that you're like a disengaged, disembodied, floating, you know, being that nothing ever really bothers and you can just take these like sweeping, skillful actions that bless everybody. That's kind of a cultural fantasy we have that you're going to become sort of like the empowered version of a bliss ninny or something. And it's totally not like that.
1: Bliss ninny? Yeah, that is such a great phrase. Yeah, you've never <laughs> heard that. Yeah. I've never heard. Okay, yeah, the empowered version of a bliss in the, Yeah, it doesn't exist. Yeah,
0: right. I mean, I talk to a lot of awakened people, a lot, and they all have problems and shit that bugs them and stuff they're working to do. And, you know, and I don't see that as somehow like a flaw in their awakening. I mean, I see it as absolutely beautiful expression of their humanity shining through their awakening, right? It's both of those things together.
1: Yeah. It's the essence of existence.
0: This is just something I was noticing today. It's kind of cracked me up. I was noticing on Twitter, you know, I have a number of followers that come from the podcast or my teaching or whatever. And I notice if I make a statement on Twitter that is like, I'm having a bad day or something really bugs me. And I'm being like, kind of not the listening version of an awakened person. I lose dozens of followers, like immediately. Mm -hmm. I'll make that post and dozens just drop off. Like, and maybe I'm misinterpreting it or over it or whatever, but it just cracks me up because it's like, wow, they those people really expect that mm-hmm. if you're a meditation teacher, you don't have feelings or something.
1: Yeah, you know, we didn't mention this, but the podcast that I've hosted for, for so long is about relationships.
0: You're a very famous podcast, yes.
1: and Together.guide. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the plug. <laughs> the point I'm trying to get to is that I have listeners who think I must be perfect in my romantic relationship. Yeah,
0: you don't have any problems with right. your partner.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I'm a guru or something. And and I'm really allergic to relationship gurus who express themselves in that way. And what I've tried to do in that context is incorporate the challenge into the insight. From my perspective, the whole, the only way to approach a relationship is to acknowledge that you are going to hate your partner sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> And that it's often going to be because you're being a dope, no matter how well you know these skills. Yeah. And I found the same thing on Twitter. If I would ever talk about a challenge I was having, I would lose followers. If I ever talked about how perfectly blissful I was, I might gain a few. <laughs> yeah. But both of those made me feel somewhat nauseous. So I tried to find this middle ground. And I don't know, I maybe achieved it two or three times before I just shut off Twitter.
0: Yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's like, it's not like I care so much about how many followers I have. In fact, oftentimes I'm like, ha, let's see how many I could lose today by well, just well, telling but the it, truth. I mean, obviously it's not about how many you have,
1: but it, but this is a barometer for how communication is landing in the public sphere. And then for me, that gives me a sense of how to calibrate my approach to help.
0: Yeah. If you heard the podcast with Daniel Ingram, the second one where we were talking about teachers and teaching. I talked about how I very consciously try to pop any bubbles of projection because even though bubbles of projection can really be skillful teaching tools in another way, they just tend to lead to difficulties and complications and non-optimal teaching outcomes. And so I just kind of cut to the chase and pop the bubble. And if I'm teaching, I'll just drop F-bombs right away or I don't know scratch my armpit or something it's amazing because it's just like an instant popping of the bubble and sort of switching the gears into a different kind of relationship yeah and it's interesting though you just see over and over again how the dynamics of human interaction make it so that the world will reward you for pretending to be perfectly awake or the world will reward you for pretending to never have a problem with your relationship. And in fact, the more you do that, the more the world will reward you. And yet that is just nonsense. It's completely a lie.
1: And ultimately it's a dead end.
0: It's a dead end and it's false.
1: Yeah. Well, let's turn to a new topic. You wrote this article that I skimmed briefly. Apparently it's getting some traction, some little controversy And if I understand, you basically, in this article, just tried to create a really simple, succinct definition of awakening. Is that about right? That was the attempt, yes. And how did you define it?
0: It's a big question, and we'd have to go into the whole article to answer that, really. But the short version is that I'm looking at non-dual awakening from the perspective of an organism who is creating representations in its brain via the signals that are coming through its senses. And that when you redefine awakening to be the understanding that the feeling you have of being you and the sense you have of the world being real are fabrications, as we would say in Buddhism, or representations in sensory awareness that are being created by the brain. It's just a much more succinct way to understand awakening and also to instantly cut through a tremendous amount of, let's just say, mythological and traditional and religious elements and teachings around that. And I'm fine, I'm not saying those are wrong or not true, but for a modern Westerner who is... Whether they realize it or not, probably raised as science is the truth. This is a very sciencey way to understand it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, one thing I really love about your approach to the response you've been getting is that you really get your critics on this one, you can really empathize with them.
0: I was one of them. I mean, I've certainly been involved in mysticism and spirituality to the nth degree, Eric. I mean, I, you know, I can do a perfectly adequate Vedic astrology reading for you if you (laughs) wish, you know, I could read your tarot and and do a good job. Oh, we should do that. I'd love to have my tarot read
1: sometime.
0: (laughs) I mean, you know, I've gone there as far as you could go. Like that's my background, right? So I deeply understand the critics, but I also from that background understand what is to be gained by just setting that aside for a minute and trying to look from this very different perspective. And it, what is to be gained is a lot.
1: Well, do me the favor of explaining your critic's perspective. Like, take it for a moment and let's hear it.
0: Well, especially if you're coming from the Advaita tradition, like a typical non-dual tradition, the perspective I have is a dualistic perspective, right? I'm talking about an organism from a third-person kind of Objective viewpoint, and that's already dualistic. And so it's already coming from the view of science and dualism as being somehow real. Mm-hmm. And if you notice in the article, though, I do keep saying I use the word probably a lot. Yeah, yeah, you do. And I'm doing that because I never want to shut the door on this other stuff, but just say, just for now, let's look from this scientific, dualistic, objective perspective at how organisms are wired and think about the fact that your sense of yourself and the sense of the world around you is a representation in your brain, suddenly all of awakening can be understood as seeing that representation. And when you then take that realization, which by the way is just as powerful, just as real as getting there from these other paths, a lot becomes very, very, very clear, very suddenly. And then after that, as far as I'm concerned, if you want to go back into the traditional ways of understanding or these Advaita ways of talking about it, great, you know, go there. But for me, in a way, I'm kind of a practical person. My favorite thing is working with my students and getting in there and helping them wake up. And I found that this particular way of working is just somehow clicks for Western minds
1: yeah it does speak to the western mind and you know something you said earlier is that you've identified that we're we're on the precipice of some real danger here and that one way to step back from that precipice is to cause more awakening around us that's right and so i can imagine you saying to some of your critics like guys i get the criticism but uh let's try this let's try this a little bit because it might have some good practical impact
0: yeah. And to me, if we're into just the age old thing of the relief of suffering, you know, maybe this helps more people, you know, or people with a Western mindset or whatever. So just in a practical sense, or we could say a pious sense, like skillful action, maybe it's really helpful. That was my hope in writing it. Also back to the point about the world being in a rough place, which it definitely is. This is one of the reasons I'm so open to and excited to, you know, new technologies that are evolving that might help us to actually a technological intervention to help people wake up and age old technologies like, you know, various molecules, various plants that help people wake up. That's always been part of the path. The plant versions, the molecule versions have always been part of the path of human awakening for most of the world. It hasn't necessarily been part of Buddhism, but at this point I'm like, hey, We have to take whatever shortcuts we can find if it really helps people to care more about each other in the world.
1: I don't know exactly where you stand on the technological approaches. You're definitely interested in them. You've interviewed people who are experts in those areas. On the other hand, I've heard you say to me personally, like, you know, be careful with those. They can be quite dangerous and counterproductive. So what is your current thinking on that realm?
0: I've been involved in what we would now call brain hacking since, you know, the 80s. I was really interested in the blinky light eye mask things they had back then that would, you know, uh, have LEDs flashing at the frequency of theta brainwave states or alpha or brainwave. Did those work? Yeah, a little bit. You know, they were interesting. I loved the 1950s version of the Brian geisen and William Burroughs brain machine, their dream machine, as they called it, which uses like just analog technology to do something similar. And in fact, one time in Boulder, I got to hang out with William Burroughs and talk to him about like his, you know, like dream machine versus these blinky light machines. And he was a very beautiful human. It was wonderful to talk to him. So it's always been interesting, but it's also something that from way back then, I just notice most of them don't really deliver. Like they do something and it's interesting, but it's limited. Especially those were working just on the principle of kind of entraining you into a certain frequency, brainwave frequency, and and you you just get used to it very quickly, and it stops having the effect. These days, people are doing much more intense interventions, and a lot of them aren't so passive; they're pretty intrusive or invasive, and. We just don't know that much about it. I mean, it's funny with psychedelics or plants or whatever. We've been doing that since the beginning of time. Sure, yeah. And so the upsides and, you know, important downsides are well known to us. But with the technology, we don't know the upsides of the downsides that well yet, especially we're not very aware of the downsides. So I just would caution people to tread lightly there. And we don't want to harm anybody. And at the same time, it's a very powerful and interesting area of study. I mean, we're we're getting, you know, new technology that's trying everything. We've got transcranial magnetic stimulation stuff. We've got people just electrically zapping their brains. I've right? done that. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> right? And, and there's a whole bunch of them, and some of them have real drawbacks, you know. And some of these devices uh, are actually not that good for you and other ones that I've used specifically train you out of meditation they're supposed to be meditation trainer you know brain machines but if you go deeper than like day 1 of meditation it starts to train you out of a concentrated relaxed state
1: well but here you are again like you know you've just given us all the warnings but so where should we move forward
0: well, I think that there's always been the case with new technologies. Like, think about the first people who tried out cars, you know, especially race car drivers back in, like, the teens and 20s of the last century. They're willing to just wipe out it. And, yeah. and, or the people who tried out all the crazy stuff with airplanes. Yeah. Just a little after that. They were willing to break their bones and, you know. And die. And die to try it out. So yeah. there, there will always be people like that. But eventually we, we want to zero in on, you know, a helpful, useful, powerful technology that's not dangerous.
1: Well, I mean Or,
0: you know, that we can manage the danger of.
1: Is there any one technology that you think is pretty well, you know, safetyified?
0: Uh most of the ones that are safetyified don't do anything that interesting in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a rub.
1: So we're not there yet. Okay, we're not we're, there yet. We're, it's we're we're not interesting there yet. area of exploration.
0: Yeah, if I had to choose between, you know, like the molecule direction and the machine direction right now, it's I'm 100% for the molecule direction. Yeah, 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 yeah. At we're least, sort of
1: at the early Wright brothers stage of the machine direction. Yeah, so
0: I have very high hopes, but uh, we're, it's a little too early.
1: Yeah, all right. Okay, fair enough. Okay, but this was all a tangent from this question of, you know, how can we, I guess, accelerate the process so that we don't step over the brink here as a society.
0: Another thing that's accelerating the process is communication technology. I mean, the amount of information available about how to meditate, how to awaken, today, it feels like it's infinitely more, which it's not. But it has that feeling of unbelievably a lot more than, let's say... When I was a kid in Michigan in the 70s, you know, there just wasn't that much available. And now
1: it's all available. It's all available, all of it. And that might be the answer to this question. But I've noticed an acceleration of awakening around me. You know, the little experience that I had at one point in our human history would have been quite extraordinary. And now it's, it's pretty commonplace, actually. Nothing, <laughs> nothing all that special about what I went through.
0: Well, it's really uh, funny if you go back to, you know, the early Buddhist scriptures, the Buddha would give a sermon and like 400 people would get enlightened on the spot.
1: Boom, 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 boom.
0: Now we could call that mythology or some kind of hagiography or whatever, but what if it's just true and it's like not that hard if someone is speaking your language? Yeah, You know, it's interesting to think that we've been, you know, hearing all this stuff in translation for so long. And with, let's say, teachers who weren't of our culture and so on, and slowly we're adapting this material to our culture and some stuff gets lost, but other stuff suddenly gets a lot, lot clearer. It's really interesting to listen to Kenneth Folk talk about when he was in Burma and the way like even the cab driver understood the four levels of Theravada Awakening and they all knew where he was at. They're like, hey, I heard you hit the third level, you know, as they're driving to the airport and <laughs> stuff. so just, great. They were just they had totally normalized oh, it. Oh man, it's so good. And I think that maybe our culture is
1: slowly moving in that direction of normalizing. this. Yeah. I mean, we normalized indoor plumbing. Why not Awakening? Yeah. You know?
0: I like them both.
1: (laughs) I'm down with both of those things, you know? Food, too. (laughs) What's the thing that makes you tickle inside when you think about it?
0: You know, I really love working with people. It's super fun to hear how they're doing and get inside their experience and just see the awakening growing bit by bit. It is so fascinating and beautiful.
1: Okay, so following that analogy, you're seeing the awakening grow bit by bit. Maybe it's like an ember. Yeah. Do you see yourself as somebody who's maybe blowing on that ember just a touch? Or, or are you more just witnessing the ember?
0: Something in between. It's like, oh yeah, no, don't fall in that ditch. Let's go this other way just a little bit. Oh yeah, no, that's really cool. But that's kind of a distraction. Let's keep going this way. Just kind of nudging, nudging, nudging in the lightest way, like in the direction. So it's not really Fanning the flame in your metaphor, but kind of like, oh, you know, I've been down this path. Let's just stay on the on track here a, a little bit.
1: Can you do that in a group setting? I know you work one-on-one with people, which has got to be really fun.
0: It's different in a group setting because you're not just tuning into one person's, you know, consciousness or one person's psychology. Yeah. And so it's harder because you have to be more general, but in another way, it's easier because, you know, human beings are group creatures. And if you get the group focused in a positive direction, focused in the right direction, everyone can move forward really powerfully.
1: Yeah. Which, you know, having that coalesce is an interesting process. We're doing that right now. You know, I'm at a startup now and I brought you in to be our meditation teacher once a week at the startup.
0: It's so much fun. <laughs>
1: It's, they're, they're a great group of guys. All guys.
0: They inspired me to get my second giant screen out of storage and set up my computer now with two screens instead of just one.
1: Yeah, because that's how they roll. Yeah, and some of them have three. Did you notice? I did. They've got three screens, <laughs> <laughs> big ones, but none of them are seekers. They were all interested. Oh yeah, meditation class. That'll be cool. We'll do that. And now they're diligently practicing week by week, day by day, but they weren't trying to become awakened. You know, in fact, they probably hadn't ever even thought about that as an idea or a possibility. And it's almost in this way, it's almost easier to get a group of seekers to start coalescing around a process because, you know, that the seekingness is what sort of sticks them together. It's the glue, the binds, with And they're, they're inherently motivated. But that's the phrase I was looking for. Yeah. With these guys, it's different. You know, they're interested But you've got to approach it in a completely different way.
0: And it's in a way that I really like. I mean, that's why I wrote The Mindful Geek, because I like talking to people who aren't seekers and aren't intrinsically motivated towards awakening and probably don't even care about that. Because there's a whole other thing that's possible of just, well, let's look at moving in a direction where we're getting some traction and getting some benefits out of this and start to notice what goes on.
1: But the early stages are harder, right?
0: In a way, but in another way, they're easier because that type of group of people are not coming at it with a ton of preconceptions. Yeah. So there's a beginner's mind, which is really, really fresh and fascinating.
1: I mean, they definitely have a beginner's mind about it. Unrepentantly and unconsciously, but how do you get them to stick around long enough? like these guys are sticking around for some reason i don 't know maybe because I remind them every week, but what is the glue that binds them into staying in that context
0: i don't know. I just try to again understand where people are coming from and see what their goals and motivations are, what they care about, and then talk to that because things like concentration you know let 's talk about concentration. That's something that if you use it correctly is useful to any person. Yeah. There's nothing you do that concentration can't help you do better. And so, okay, it doesn't have to be concentrating on, you know, emptiness right now. Let's just concentrate and get better at it. Or sensory clarity. Hey, you want to enjoy your meal today? Let's talk about sensory clarity, right? So you just figure out what people care about. And it turns out that meditation can help them be better at that. and You know, the critique that classicists can have of that approach is that it leaves out a lot of the ethical component, but I do trust that the ethical component comes along with it. You know, Mm -hmm. the more that you learn concentration, clarity, equanimity, you know, these core skills of meditation, the more that you begin to contact your connection with other people, other animals, and open up with more sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So I trust the process.
1: Yeah. You trust the process. And so these guys are coming to it with no preconceived notions, with no hope or maybe even awareness of the idea of awakening. And yet if they practice diligently, they're going to start to see parts of their identity begin to deconstruct. Yes. And what happens happens to people who weren't looking for it and that begins to occur?
0: anything can happen. You know, it can be positive, it can be negative, it can be both, it can be neither. I mean, a lot could happen. But the main thing is that if you're with a competent guide, you know, they're going to help you with that. But what I think is most fascinating is what, if we just generalize in a way that might be reductive, what do Silicon Valley, you know, teenage Bitcoin millionaire coders care about? right? They're going to care about being really highly effective. Many of them expressed to me the desire to connect better with other people, because to be that good at coding, you might be a little bit on the spectrum, or, you know, spend a lot of time alone in a room, so they want to connect with others better. And also, there's this some kind of understanding I found throughout the culture of Silicon Valley, and this has been in the DNA of the Silicon Valley culture since the beginning, which is this sort of notion of, let's say, deep flow states or kind of like peak states. In in the early version, it would be altered states of consciousness. You've got the very well-known history of all the early pioneers in Silicon Valley being into psychedelics, into yoga, you know, in a deep way, into meditation. So there is some kind of understanding of that kicking around the culture. And so, okay, you want to learn to be in flow states with concentration. You want to learn to connect with others with metta practice. You want to learn to be in altered states of consciousness, whether it's at Burning Man or whether it's, you know... (laughs) in your coding each day, or maybe in the woods, just hanging out for a walk on Mount Tam or something. All of those goals can be addressed through meditation. And so it's not necessarily that I'm trying to sneak some kind of awakening in on them, you know, it's like, no, their legitimate goals can be legitimately addressed using meditative skills. And if they start to go deeper and further, I can work with that with them also.
1: Or skillfully guide them to put the practice down if they want to.
0: You bet. Or, like, back off. Or back uh, off. You know, like, take the foot off the gas pedal a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been great having you in there. There's just a deeper sense of presence in the room now since we've been practicing with you. Thanks. So, thank you, Michael. This was great. I mean, really, what an honor to be on your show, my favorite show. Thanks. Um, What a pleasure to be back in the studio, my old stomping grounds. And uh, just what a joy to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much for agreeing to do the interview and bringing your massive interview skills to this little recording. And, you know, I love this studio. So thanks for that as well.
1: hundred percent.